We've been exploring these stories in the book of Daniel together for several weeks. The stories of God's people, people who had been lost to battle, lost in war, and have been transported into exile, a forced migration, and they're struggling to live in a new country and a new regime. They've lived in exile far from home for a long time. And yet, it is a story of unwavering faith. In chapter one, we come alongside these people who are discovering their faith is portable. They can put it in their luggage almost and take it with them. The definition of who they are is not their circumstances, but given to them by God. In chapter two, we join with them as they're learning to discern the voice of God and listening for his whisper because God always wants to talk with us. In chapter three, you see them facing huge pressure and they're learning how to stand up and live under that sort of pressure. Even as God brings deliverance in the fire, not from it the way we would prefer, but we're never alone. In chapter 4, we were discovering the humility of their faith and learning to understand what it means to live with our weaknesses and to recognize God is present there too. Last weekend in chapter 5, we discovered something about engaging with the mystery of God as he's inviting us to use our imagination and creativity to tell the story of Jesus in fresh ways, doing old things in new ways. And today we come to chapter 6. It's the final story This book is divided into two halves. The first half is stories. The second half is all about all sorts of dreams and visions. And in the new year, we'll come back to discover these unwavering people, discovering what it means to unveil all of the visions that they receive. We're going to look in through chapter 7 through 12 when we get there. And part of what will happen there is a change of language again. The book began in Hebrew, it switched into Aramaic, it's going to switch back again. Some reasons for all of that, we'll figure it out. But today we're going to think about Daniel and yet another king. The old guy, Belshazzar's dead, there's now a new king, Darius. I love coffee, my mornings usually begin with coffee. Same routine, coffee first, cafe lungo, strong black, just the way Jesus drank his, Matthew 14 if you want a reference. You know that an average a coffee bean, a tree, a coffee tree produces one to two pounds of coffee a year? One pound of those beans represents 4,000 berries. Coffee's actually a fruit, which is really good because it's obviously healthy for you. The average person in North America, I think, consumes something like 10 pounds of coffee a year. And in Japan, they have a national coffee day. There's a good day we could add to our holiday list, October 1. And in Turkey at one time, bridegrooms were supposed to promise their wife in a wedding ceremony to provide her with coffee, and if he failed to do so, it would be grounds for divorce. Hmm. I'm not advocating here. And for those of you who think it's evil to be drinking coffee, you need to know that Pope Clement VII or Eighth or whatever number, in the 1500s baptized coffee and considered it to be from God himself. So there. Many of us have got routines in the morning, getting up, having coffee, making breakfast, having cereal, getting kids' lunches ready, transporting people around the city, following the same route in your car, coming home, having dinner, watching your show on TV, and off to bed. We very much are creatures of habit when it comes to that. And so was our man Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, stationed throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three administrators, one of whom was Daniel. To these the satraps gave account, so that the king might suffer no loss. 
Soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other administrators and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. The empire is under new management. Belshazzar's dead, Darius is king, the Persians are now in charge in Babylon. And they were great organizers. They set up these local governors or satraps into various provinces, supervised by three people, here called administrators, some translations will call them uh, presidents. At this point, Daniel, who we've been following along, has been taken into exile in his late teens. We've gone his whole life's trajectory. If you add up the numbers, he's somewhere in his 80s, I think. More or less, Daniel is Joe Biden. That's what you've got going on here. But old people can still do awesome things. The older I, oh, you can clap. I'm I'm not there yet, but I'm glad for you. 83 years old, William Gladstone became prime minister in the UK for the fourth time. 85 years old, John Wesley, a preacher who I've studied and spent a lot of time reading the things he wrote, preached with almost undiminished energy three times a day in his 85th year. At 89, Michelangelo painted his last judgment painting. At 90, Thomas Edison was still filing patents at the patent office. Harlan Sanders at 65, get this, he started his first Kentucky Fried Chicken after being lose, losing, I think it was 12 or 14 jobs beforehand. Wow. But Daniel wasn't simply experienced because he was old. Daniel had character. He was persistent and trustworthy and reliable. If you look at verse 3, it says he was an exceptional man. There was an exceptional spirit in Daniel. Everything he did, he himself, just noticeably superior to everything and everyone else. He was a man of great natural gifts. And they were being well used. The qualities that brought him to the attention of King Neb when he was a young man weren't just some sort of flight of fantasy for a young person he burned out in the first couple of years. These qualities lived and grew with him his entire life. Every regime succession still kept Daniel at the helm of their organization because he was exceptional and the king knew it. And so did his colleagues. They knew it and they were ticked. They'd heard about his promotion, that he was going to be put in charge of everything. Some sort of leak in the king's cabinet, I guess. And they were not happy. Who is he to get himself put in charge? And an epidemic of professional jealousy began to set in. Political life, of course, even today, is rife with that sort of thing. It's an incubator for it. And we all know the cynicism that we share sometimes. As you hear politicians making vague promises, you know they're never going to keep We kind of yawn and stare at the TV and wonder about it as they look for the best soundbite or the best photo op, but nothing changes. These guys were sick of Daniel. Someone younger should get the job. Someone who's more like us, not one of these foreigners that was brought here all these years ago. He shouldn't be in charge. And so they began to look for some way to undermine him, some sort of scandal they could dig up the way we see happen, and they could throw it in his face and try and get him put out but there was nothing to find because his integrity shone through. And that's the vital other side of his story. Not just that he was capable beyond most people, 
But his integrity was so much there, everybody noticed it. There was no way to bring him into trouble. We see it all the time, very capable people whose lives are marked by all sorts of disaster zones in the financial sector. And how many decades have we seen that? People who are terribly smart and know how to do all sorts of things, crashing all sorts of things round about them in the bid to make themselves rich and wealthy and powerful, facilitating their own greed. In public service, we see that too. Politicians and civil servants using their own office to line their own pockets, give their contracts to friends, make sure things go well for them. But Daniel was trustworthy. The people below him knew he could tr- they could trust him because he was fair and honest and genuine. His word was his word. And those above him, in this case the king, they knew he was trustworthy too. You leave Daniel in charge, things don't happen to go missing. Things don't go badly wrong when you're out of the room. Daniel could be counted on. Nobody was going to bribe him. His integrity shone through. And left with no incriminating evidence, his enemies had only one choice, to custom make a law that he would break and then they would have him. They needed to make a crime for him to commit and then they would get him. And the only hope lay in his faith and the practices of it. You see, they knew in verse 5 that we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. The plan's simple. Unlike all such plans and good stories, all you need is one person who doesn't know what's going on, in this case the king. And so they come with the usual flattery we've read in this book many times, O king, live forever! And once they've got his attention... They make this outrageous suggestion. Why don't you make yourself into a god? (laughs) That'd be a great thing to do. Most of us would laugh it off if somebody said that to us. I mean, come on, who can think that way? And I think they were wise to it too, so they set a bit of a time limit. Well, we all know you're not a real god. We're not meaning that. But it would be kind of fun to try it out to see what it felt like. And just for 30 days, that's not so bad. Bit of a laugh. And it would be a great test of loyalty to all these new immigrants we've got coming here all the time. They come from different countries. They speak different languages. They have different faiths. This would be a great test of their loyalty if they would acknowledge you to be their God just for a month to see how it goes. Fun for you. Great new test for everybody else to see who's in, who's out. We'll know who's who. And there would be a terrible punishment for those who were disloyal to the king, the emperor, and this newfound God. We read this in verse 7. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to any god or human for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the den of lions. Lions were a big deal in ancient Babylon. When our kids were fairly young, we were still living in Switzerland, we took them to Berlin one day to see something that I'd seen years ago, and I got the little guidebook. In Berlin, they've housed this beautiful gateway that comes from ancient Babylon. It was dug up in the time when explorers would go around, dig things up and take it home with no care for who it belonged to, and that's what happened there. They excavated and took out what was called the New Year Processional Way, and at big street going in through this fancy gate into Babylon for a big festival. It's dated from the lifespan of Daniel, which means, in other words, when you look at that gate, on a big fancy parade day, he would be riding in through that gate. He saw it as well as you, and you can see all the lions on it. The lions are quite fantastic. The whole parade way down 
they're there. Lions were a big deal. And in fact, when they excavated the gate, they also excavated a tablet with an inscription on it. And do you know whose name's on it? King Neb, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who had it built, the first king we encounter in the book of Daniel. Well, this king, Darius, he buys into this idea. Well, I've been a king and I've been an emperor. I guess being a god, that sounds kind of interesting, at least for a little while. I should give it a try. But these conniving schemers weren't really looking out for the king's best interests. They could care less if he was a god. They knew he was only a man. And they weren't really interested in loyalty either, not to him. They were undermining him and using him for their own ends to get rid of the one person they didn't like, to get Daniel out of the way so they could do things their way. They knew Daniel was a creature of habit. In fact, they were counting on it. They were depending on Daniel doing what he always did, going home and praying three times a day, keeping to his schedule. And what happened? Daniel was there. Just as they said he would be, verse 10. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open towards Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. You see, Daniel is far more concerned about who he was than what he could become. The issues of integrity and character, his pattern of faithfulness and perseverance had served him well. They remind us of Daniel's desire to please God and let everything else fall by the wayside. Life would unfold as God intended. He was more concerned with who he was than who he could become. He had unwavering faith. But sometimes I think the quest for significance or purpose our meaning in our lives means that we reverse the priority. And that becomes challenging for us when we do that. We try to satisfy the hunger for significance through compromise. Maybe it's not real politics, but maybe it's office politics or life at home, just trying to be accepted by somebody. Or we try to satisfy the hunger within us. We try to find it with the calories of Things or titles or resources or money or reputation. Again, at the cost of character or integrity or compassion. We don't do it with a great sell-off of the soul. We're not that crass. But often it's just five cents at a time. Just this once, never again. Ever said that? Not long after, though, we discover how easy it is to bankrupt our own souls. We wonder how we got there. How did this happen? Spiritually empty. And as we chase after whatever it is we want, we become less of what we know, less than God has intended for us. Not Daniel. He was a creature of habit. His instinct was to pray, his habit was to pray. What's yours? When you feel the heat at work, or things are not going well at home, or other people are pushing you and exerting pressure upon you to make certain choices, when your life perhaps begins to collapse, what's your instinct? Some of us panic and get freaked out. We get scared. We never planned on this happening. We don't really know what to do. Some of us swell with pride. <laughs> Not me. I've got it. I know what I'm doing. You won't catch me. We get high opinions of ourselves. We are self-sufficient. And for some of us, 
choose to pray. But I want you to think about it for a minute. If prayer is not your first response, why not? Why not? I think prayerlessness in our lives is like an indicator light, a warning light in the dashboard of your own life. It's just blinking and blinking and blinking. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. But we don't pay any attention. Jesus' invitation is to spend time with him. And when the pressure is on, his invitation in Matthew chapter 11 is to come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when the crunch time came and Daniel found himself trapped in the deceit of his colleagues, guess what? He didn't resort to emergency actions. He wasn't begging the king to change his mind. He didn't run away and disappear. He wasn't just praying in secret or not praying at all. He wasn't weighing up all the pluses and minuses to see what the options were. That's not what happened. He just did what he always did. He went home, went to his room, and he prayed. He was a creature of habit. The first thing he would do is open his windows. I remember the first time being, seeing one of these big windows they have in Europe. It's kind of weird in modern houses. They're gigantic windows, and they open differently. The handle means you can open it two ways. One way, if you lift the handle halfway, it'll open and swing on a vertical hinge, so the thing will open inwards like your front door. It'll do that. But if you lift the handle the whole way, it opens on a horizontal hinge at the bottom, which means the window comes tilting out toward you. We'd bought an apartment that had one of these windows. I had no idea how it worked, and I could barely reach it. So I'm standing on a chair trying to open this thing. And when it came out, I honestly thought I'd pulled the whole window out of the frame. And I'm like, ah, it's two meters tall, and I'm trying to hold it. But it wasn't going to fall. But far more significantly than how he opened his windows, Daniel was opening his heart. You see, opening his windows meant he could gaze in the direction of his home, Jerusalem, where he came from. The place where God's temple was. The place where he would have gone to worship when he was a teen and a young man. The place where they believed that God had made his dwelling. And he's choosing to align himself with God, even the extremities of life. He may well be living in Babylon, but his true home was where God lived. His attention was based on the one that he grew up with, knowing who loved him and cared for him. And it's through his window we can look into Daniel's heart. And what did we discover? His integrity and consistency, his unwavering faith, a man of prayer. In good times when life was going great, he still faced to part Jerusalem and aligned himself with God. And here in the extremities, when life was at its most fragile, he still opens his window and his heart is anchored there and he prays to his God. He was a creature of habit and his habit was to pray. Opening his window wasn't just so prayers could kind of float out in the direction of Jerusalem, though. It wasn't some sort of act of escapism. Opening his window meant that he was letting God in and inviting God into the situation in which he found himself. If we are anything like most people, prayer doesn't always come very easily. Not for me, at least. And I've often wondered why. We took the kids to Berlin because that's where Jill used to live. When we were engaged, she lived there. 
I lived in Glasgow in Scotland. She lived in Berlin in Germany. I wrote to her every day for two years, and she kept all those letters. Huh. We had a lot to say. <laughs> you think I'd have a lot to say to God too, wouldn't you? And we'd take the time to listen to what he would say to me. But we struggle. Part of the struggle perhaps is because we don't have habits in our lives. We talked about that a while ago. We had a series on habits. And if you want to go check that out, I'd encourage you to if habits are difficult for you. We struggle. Things begin to slip. We see it in regular relationships that we have. Love needs to be nurtured. Relationships need to be tended. And prayer needs to be disciplined like exercise. The more you do it, the easier it gets. We also see Daniel opening up his Bible. He's got the windows open. He's down on his knees. He's aligning his heart with God. And he's praying in a voice loud enough that those guys who were after him could hear. They just happened to be in the neighborhood at the right time. And they could hear him downstairs doing what he always did, praying. Where did Daniel learn to do this, though? We can't be sure, but I think he found it in the words of Scripture. Way back in King Solomon's time, when the temple was built and dedicated, we read this. If they sin against you, meaning God's people, for there's no one who doesn't sin, and you're angry with them and give them to an enemy, so they're carried away to the captive, to the land of the enemy, far off. Then if they come to their senses in the land in which they've been taken... And they repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we've sinned and done wrong, we've acted wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you towards the land that you gave their ancestors, the city that you've chosen and the house that I've built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, maintain their cause. I don't know if Daniel had read that or if he knew it. I don't know if he packed his, luggage, his Bible in his luggage or he just carried the words of God in his heart, but somehow he knew to pray, to pray to the Lord, and he knew that God was listening. In Psalm 55, we read these beautiful words of promise, but I call upon God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he will hear my voice. If habits are hard, get a plan. Get someone to help with you. Get someone to check in how you're doing. You don't need to be heroic. You just need to begin gently and begin a conversation with God. Well, what happened next? Well, the other guys, the schemers, they're waiting downstairs and they had their gotcha moment. They were not disappointed. First thing they did is go tattletailing to the king. And only then did King Darius wake up and smell the coffee that he should have been drinking. He's caught between the conspirators and his friend Daniel. He's stuck and he knows it. He spends all day trying to find a way to get out of this, but he can't. He's a prisoner of his own stupidity. There's no room for maneuver. There's nothing he can really do. Daniel was going to go to the lions. And we read in verse 16, then the king gave the command and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you faithfully serve deliver you. A stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his lords so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. In verse 17, 
His fate is literally sealed. We keep getting all these phrases that we use that come in this little book. Even more interesting, in verse 16, it feels as though that Darius is actually praying to God, praying that God somehow would be able to deliver him, breaking his own law. Was Daniel scared? We're not told. We're left to guess. But if his knees were knocking, God was definitely acting. You see, Daniel had opened heaven, not just his windows or his Bible. He had opened heaven. God heard his prayer and sent an angel to whisper to those lions, hey, pussycats. And the lions left him alone. I've often wondered, would Daniel be brave enough to go and stroke one of them like I do with our little cats at home? But I think he would just stick to the praying part. At least that's what I would be doing. And then verse 18, we read that Darius is up all night. He can't sleep. It says that his sleep wandered away from him. And he's all night trying to figure out what to do. We read that he was fasting. Turns out the lions were on a fast as well. No protein for them. At dawn, the king is up and away to see if his friend has made it through the night, to see if God has indeed answered his prayer. And whatever happened that night in that lion's den, God came through for Daniel. He came out of the lion's den the same way he went in, unharmed. He had been delivered. Heaven had been opened. The earliest followers of Jesus found a lot of similarities between the story of Jesus and the story of Daniel. I mean, think about it. They were both innocent. They hadn't done anything wrong. They both faced conspirators who were desperate to get them. They were observed by their enemies and betrayed. They were both arrested while they were praying. They were both considered innocent by the person in charge, Darius or Pontius Pilate. But the ruler was unable to free either of them. They were both sealed in a tomb. They both had friends dashing to the tomb at daybreak in the morning. They both walked out of a tomb alive. But there's some big differences too. No angel came to save Jesus. He didn't even ask. He just prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sin. He defeated death and rose on the third day, not only for himself, but giving to us the new life that he has promised, breaking the power of death once and for all. His death and resurrection are the reason for our deliverance. He's delivered us from ourselves, from that unique ability that we all seem to have to get ourselves into a boatload of trouble, from this habit of letting ourselves and letting other people down again and again, from the separation that all of these poor choices make that separate us from God, the thing the Bible will call sin. He delivers from the ultimate separation that we experience, death, from all that we love and those that we love. Jesus came to deliver us. You may not know it. You may not have experienced it. But Jesus has already delivered you. He's simply waiting for you to walk out of the lion's den. He's already delivered you. You just need to walk out. That's what we mean by faith, by placing our trust in Jesus, daring to do life differently, daring to walk out of the pit and into a new life that God gives so freely to each one of us. It's why we would call it salvation, because we've been saved, rescued by the one we call Savior. Heaven has been opened. He gave his son for us. Jesus once said to his friends, whoever loses his life will save it. 
That's a fairly enigmatic thing. And yet it refers to this possibility. When we trust God, when we dare to put everything on him, when we choose to walk out of the prison of our own making, when we choose to lose life as we know it and embrace him, we discover what life truly is, freedom. Freedom from the lions, freedom to be who God made me to be, freedom from this obsession that I have with myself, free to serve and to love other people, free to live life to the very max the way God intended, free for all eternity because the power of death is gone. When we discover life like that, I think we've begun to understand why Jesus would say to his friends, don't worry. I mean, that seems like a crazy thing to do. He's never seen my visa bill. He doesn't know what my life at work or at home is. How on earth can Jesus say, don't worry? Has he seen the results of all these tests that I keep getting from the doctors? Don't worry. But when you think about it, if God who can give you life and God who can raise you to new life and God who can provide for sparrows that don't do a whole lot of work really, is it not the case that God could take care of us? We worry so much. And Jesus' statement is not about a command, don't worry. It's more like a, why would you bother worrying? It doesn't do any good. You just get an ulcer today feeling really sick about things that may or may not happen tomorrow. We don't need to worry. It won't change anything and it's futile. But when God is with us, everything changes. Maybe that's why Daniel just walked into the lion's den. There was no pleading, no frantic praying. He simply trusted God for whatever it would be. Either God would deliver him or he would die. Either way, Daniel was far more concerned about who he was than the outcome of the lion's den. And who was he? He was God's child. He belonged to God. He wouldn't abandon his faith just because it got really difficult or because this was the end. It was in a moment like this he discovered what his faith truly was all about. Daniel discovered that fulfilling God's purposes, whether by deliverance, escaping from the den, or even by death, was what mattered most. You see, I have no idea how you're going to pay your visa bill. And I don't know how you can fix some of those relationships that are so badly damaged. I don't know how your kids will turn out. I can't provide an answer to the problems you may have in your marriage. I don't know if God will work a miracle before your next MRI and you'll discover that everything's great and going to be just fine. That's all far beyond me. The only thing I truly know is the God who is involved in my life and longs to be involved in your life too. I know that God loves each one of us, that he's already entered into the lion's den and sent his son here on earth for us. I know that he is so concerned for every single one of us that Jesus gave his life for us. I know that he has plans for all of us and that he is good and kind. I know when it feels as though the lion is in front of your face and you can feel his breath coming from his nostrils that God will be with you and he will never leave you and abandon you no matter how difficult it gets. I know that he calls all of us to do life with him, not sporadically when we feel like it, but all of the time, opening our hearts and our minds and everything we have to him and surrendering our world to him so that when tragedy does strike, or our world begins to unravel for whatever reason, we know how to face it because we know who's holding us. That's unwavering faith. This chapter started with a prohibition on prayer for 30 days. And it ends with this pagan king Darius preaching a sermon about God's protection. It's actually a cool little sermon. I want to read it to you. 
in verse 25. King Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations of every language throughout the whole world. May you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people shall tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. I mean, think about it. Darius is decreeing that God is global. He's the God of all peoples, nations, every language throughout the world. He's not some sort of local Babylonian God or some sort of local Jewish God. He is God for everybody, not some just few tribal people. And he says that he's a personal God, the living God, not some statue that you have to carry around and put some flowers and food in front of, but a living God who is personal. He's speaking and active. He's eternal, enduring forever, says the king, because it turns out it's God, not the king who lives forever. And he's sovereign. His kingdom will never be destroyed. He's faithful. He delivers and rescues his people, we read. And he's imminent. There's a big word. It just means he's close by, not far away. King Darius says that God works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He's not a God hiding away in heaven all by himself, bored stiff with us. He's a God who's deeply involved and actively involved in our world and in your life today. He's pursuing you and chasing you. And he's the savior. He saved Daniel. And he can save and rescue you too. He's a God who still saves today. This weekend, we are celebrating baptisms across all our campuses and congregations. We are around 30 people getting baptized, I think. And each one is a story of salvation because Jesus saves. Are you ready to walk out of the lion's den? Let's pray. Father, thank you today that you are a God who still saves. And thank you that as we read these old stories, We are reminded again and again, it's not just something of the past, but you are here and are present with us today. And so we pray. We pray for those that are about to be baptized right now, that this would be a remarkable moment in their faith journey, and they would sense your pleasure with them as they say yes to you. And we pray, as those of us who are trying to remember our baptism, and it's been so long ago, and our lives are complicated, that you would come and intervene today. And we pray people that have never dared to walk out of the lion's den. We're more familiar with the comfortable than with you. Lord, hear our prayer as we try to muster up the faith to say, Jesus, we trust you. Would you rescue me? Would you save me? Would you turn my life around today as I watch and read these stories? Would that become my story too? That you have become my savior and my God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.